Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, the golden god of rock and roll, Robert Plant. Robert, how are you? I'm friend? fine. How are you? All right. Nice Thank you. you very much for doing this. It's a pleasure. I've been enjoying you for many years. In the history of rock and roll, Led Zeppelin is about as big as it gets. Big in sound. Big in performance. Big in legend. And standing front and center for all of it was none other than lead vocalist Robert Plant. During the band's heyday, Plant roared at his audience with incomparable range and raw power. The story goes that when guitarist Jimmy Page found a 19-year-old Robert Plant in Birmingham, England back in 1968, he knew right away who the singer would be for his new band, Led Zeppelin. Baby, baby, I'm gonna leave you. All four members of the band were born and raised in England, but it was America that loved them first. Their mix of heavy rock and blues dominated the charts for much of the 1970s. And after nearly a decade of flying too close to the sun, the band suffered some blinding loss. First, with Robert Plant's five-year-old son, and then when drummer John Bonham drank himself to death. In 1980, Led Zeppelin called it quits, and the three remaining members have rarely reunited since much to their fans' disappointment. But Robert Plant never stopped creating music. He's had a successful solo career for decades, even winning Grammys for his work with country singer Alison Krauss in 2007. She got the money and I got the money. She got the money and I got the These days, Plant is busy touring for his critically acclaimed album, Carry Fire. But this unusually private rock star made plenty of time for a rare one-on-one with me, filled with reflection and gratitude 
for all the places he has been. Robert, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. As I say, especially on a busy day like this. Oh, no, no, no. I've always wanted to meet you, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's great to be well, with you. Well, it's great to meet you yeah. as well. Well, you're 69. Mm-hmm. And question, do you think of yourself as 69 years old or 69 years young? Well, it depends on the tone of the day, really. Some things and some circumstances you perhaps encountered one time too many already, you know. Um, But by and large, I'm in a pretty good kind of prolific environment with the people that I work with. And uh, I have a lot of exciting opportunities musically and consequently geographically um so if you could ever call singing songs a profession i've got a good profession and i've got a great family so i think i'm pretty 69 years young really well speaking of that do you consider music a profession or a craft or an art well art's a heavy word you know um i think craft is the term I would use the middle term yeah yeah because I think you grow into what might initially be an, an infatuation with the idea of entering something very special right. very daring and as a kid as a young teenager I, I was drawn to the lights because I came like so many kids out of my generation in Britain we came from a kind of very gray post-war you know, the kind of, the residue of a lot of pain and strife. So I suppose kids in the mid-50s in Britain were just starting to wake up after the, you know, parents coming back from the war or, you know, being attracted to the footlights and the entertainment and the smell of a venue and the kind of, um, the anticipation in a crowd, I love that. I thought that was an amazing thing, you know, um, because I've, I've been a music fan and a fan of all things that are interesting and occasionally unique all my life. So I'm, I'm always a member of the audience and an entertainer, mm-hmm. really. So yeah, it's a craft. Sometimes it's clever, sometimes it's a real flop, you know. Well, I'm particularly interested in what you said about Great Britain in the wake of World War II. Mm. And I think a lot of people have forgotten, some don't know, partly because they weren't alive. It was a rather austere period for Britain, at least through most, if not all, of the 50s. Yeah, and into the 60s too, yeah. I mean, um, into the early 60s. Um, And also, now I understand more about my my father's generation. You know, um, there were so many people that didn't come back and, and every family had some member of the family who, who just didn't return. So those that did, my father and my mom, they, got, they, were, they drew themselves out of that, in that post-war sort of grayness. Uh, my father was aspiring. So I think now I can understand why he wondered what in God's name I was doing, <laughs> turning my back on it. Um, a career that was round the corner beckoning me and I chose this other road and he was bemused he just didn't get it at all and when I think about what he went through before he he had a wife and a kid and the years that he spent I can quite understand 
why he was quite sort of, um, I would say probably slightly disappointed, you know, initially. Did he talk about the war with you? He never, ever talked about it. Like so many of my friends of my generation, their fathers never, until um, his very latter days. And then he came out with some real corkers, some very funny stories, mm -hmm. of which obviously he was giving us the funny stuff. But um, yeah, that generation didn't say much. That generation didn't say much. Now, do you think that's the reason, or not, that so many of rock and roll's biggest stars, most successful people, came out of the post-post-World War II generation? Do you think that was part of it? I think definitely there was a kind of grim, you know, determination to get on from our parents' generation. But for us, we didn't have any real measure of what they had been dealing with. So we were just going, hey, let's go. What's happening? Wow, there's little Richard. Little Richard. You know, um, this guy banging the piano with a pompadour who was driving us mad, you know, so good. And Bill Haley, as he did these tours, Bill Haley and the Comets, who you'd say would be quite tame, really, by the standards of what followed, were just, they were setting the world on fire. Uh, I looked at them and I went, that's what I want. I want to be like that. It wouldn't be long before Robert Plant was setting the world on fire in his own way with Led Zeppelin. I've been dazed and confused so long it's not true. What a woman You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. The band Led Zeppelin may have been famous for their music but they were infamous for their hard partying ways. In their 20s, they are rich, powerful, temperamental, and pampered. They are the Led Zeppelin, a rock group on tour. And in the vernacular of the record biz, the Zeppelin is very big. Flying in private jets, trashing hotel rooms, and of course, all the womanizers. Almost 50 years later, it's hard to separate the fact from the fiction for so many of these stories. But suffice to say, members of Led Zeppelin were pioneers of the modern rock and roll era. They set the tone for how to sound, how to look, and for better or for worse, how to act. You know, I have a feeling, Robert, if, if one looked up in the dictionary, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that they'd probably be a picture of Led Zeppelin. Well, it's very kind of you. Uh, <laughs> well, I, my question, I want you to be reflective. 
uh, because you're not anywhere near the end if, if you're half lucky in God's grace. That's right. But looking back over it, what's been the best of it? The best of it? You said there'd be no trick questions. I think maybe the best of it is that our time initially when the whole thing was opening up was there were no charts, there were no maps, there was no structure, there was no conditioning. We were flying by the seat of our pants into this thing. There were many people around us, especially from the Bay Area, San Francisco. There were fantastic bands, musical units, but we had no, there was no etiquette developed yet. There was no, the last thing we were was uh, a good bet to have on a talk show or anything like that, you know. It was a, a time to be proud of our music and also now that I know now the way that everything's gone, look where we are, you know, in Warner Brothers, you know, the home of Once Upon a Time Atlantic Records and all right. the great stuff. There were no rules. Things were being developed and, and the journey, there was no, nobody could plot it. It was just, what do we do now? Oh, maybe we'll play somewhere bigger. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just like kids going from playing in the youth club behind the church to playing small clubs. The acceleration into another place was crazy. I mean, A little like being thrown in as an astronaut in, into the cosmos? Well, at least getting out of the ship halfway across the journey, yeah, because you had no idea. Nobody knew what was going on. During some of what shall I call the most publicized things of that era, Led Zeppelin is breaking through. All those stories about riding motorcycles in hotels, wrecking hotel rooms, throwing television sets out of windows and all of that. Now, I know that some of that was hyperbole, and maybe it's like overstated, but some of it was true. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it, do you regret that? Well, I can only apologize for the motorbike in the hallway, but it was a tiny, mini one, and it fitted very nicely in the elevator, not being smug, but the other stuff, actually, to be perfectly honest, I think I must have missed that. Um, but obviously, there was a frenetic energy, and it was not always other bands that were in the middle of it. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it was particularly a magnificent achievement. Well, true or untrue, you said. I think half-jokingly I must have missed some of that. But the, when you sing, particularly when you have the kind of range that you have, you can't stay up all night, every night, and perform at that level. No. So did you find yourself sort of slipping away at some point in the evening and saying, at least I have to get to sleep? Well, you know, the thing is, a voice is not going to... It's a muscle, and it's a funny-shaped thing anyway. Mm. And um, Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with my voice along the line. I was in Australia once, in Melbourne, I remember waking up and we'd sold out a kind of some huge stadium. The stage was on wheels, so they got it so that if we had 10,000 people, that was fine. But if it was 12, they could wheel the stage back with a tractor pulling it and then back and then back and then right. back. And as the day went on, more and more people arrived and I couldn't speak. 
And I went to a doctor and he hit me with some adrenaline and stuff like that. And I, I mean, I turned several shades of different colors and slid down the wall, covered in perspiration and sang the gig. Now that's the last thing a singer needs to do. The damage that you can do. One time I went to see a voice specialist in London, in Harley Street. He was pretty highbrow. He had a, he had a desk with a little button underneath so that as you walked in, he hit the button and the curtains all closed around you and he had a kind of dish on his head and put a camera down my throat and he said, he said, in six months' time, your voice won't even be able to show signs of surprise. He said, it's over. And that was 28 years ago. So, I mean, the number of times you think you've had it, you think it's gone, or... And, then, and there's quite a lot of singers who, who were so hard on themselves that they did lose it forever. But you, up until this point, are not one of them. No, I'm doing all right. Yeah. Is it a situation where you now where you say to yourself, look, I haven't lost anything. I can do what I did before. Or are you at that point where you say, I'm not as good as I once was, but for once, I'm as good as I ever was? And see, Dan, I never stop working, really. I take a break, take a holiday. The grandchildren want to go and see soccer or whatever it is. That's all fine. <clears throat> But I'm always furtive and always looking, and so I'm always trying to keep my voice in the right place. And the way these songs work out for me in the last 10 years or so, I started to apply myself in an appropriate way to suit the music that was being created. There's no point in wailing like a banshee over, you know, some of the most beautiful violin playing on the planet, you know. So. Um, so I cut my cloth accordingly, and and um, I got a, there's a still a lot of rebel yell inside me, but uh, I have to write according to my times too. And I mean, I keep very very good company with my band, and we, we are pretty harmonious between us. So I don't have any fears of not being able to do it or finding that I'm coming to an end of something. If that's the case, I'll just go country. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. Led Zeppelin has sold more than 300 million albums worldwide and so many of their songs are classic rock anthems. There is one song, however, that is in a category all its own, the eight-minute masterpiece, Stairway to Heaven. There's a lady who should All that glitters is gold And she's buying staring In 1971, the music was composed by Jimmy Page, and the lyrics were written by Robert Plant. 
all these years later, it still resonates with so many young and old. Rolling Stone magazine readers called it the best song in rock and roll history. Now it's Stairway to Heaven. A lot of people consider it the most classic song of Led Zeppelin time. But it's my understanding that while well, you, you will perform it, it's not your favorite thing to perform. Well, it's not, no, it's not about it being my favorite or not. It's nothing, it, it's nothing to do with that, really. It's just that it belongs to a particular time. If I had been involved in the instrumentation, I would feel that it's a magnificent piece of music which has its own character and personality. It even speeds up in a similar way to some pieces of more highbrow music. But my contribution was to write lyrics and to sing a song about fate and something very British, almost abstract. Um, but they were coming out of the mind of a 23-year-old guy, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it landed in the years and the era of 23-year-old guys. And I think as time goes on, you find, you find that you may find another period of your life has got a little bit more substance or is more relative later on down the line, you know. So as much as I... I like it. Um, I'm not wedded to that whole deal now. Now, true or untrue, that Kashmir is your your personal all-time favorite? Yeah, I think it probably. Well, it was a great achievement to take such a monstrously dramatic musical piece and find a lyric that <clears throat> was ambiguous enough and a delivery which was not over-pumped. Just, it almost was like the antithesis of the music was this kind of lyric and this vocal delivery that was just about enough to get in there, you know. But it's your all-time, your personal all-time favorite. Well, I mean, there's such a variety of songs that I guess I'd have to go along. Today, I'd have to say yes. Tomorrow, maybe something else. Yeah, exactly. While Kashmir may be Robert Plant's favorite song, one of his most personal songs was All My Love. He wrote the ballad for his son, Carrick. Carrick died of a stomach virus at the age of five while Plant was on an American tour with Led Zeppelin. Plant left the band immediately to spend the next several months grieving with his family. All My Love. I know that's difficult for you to talk about <clears> it because <throat> you wrote that in the wake of your, your son's death mm. in the mid-70s. And as a parent, I know whatever the parent knows, that your terror in life is that one of your children will die before you do. Mm. And I recognize it. But tell me what you can and what you will about All My Love. Uh, that, yeah. 
I think it was just paying tribute to the joy that he gave us as a family, you know. And in a crazy way, still does uh, occasionally, his mother and I often. I mean, the memory gets changes, the contrast and the focus changes as time goes on. It's a long time ago that we lost him, 40 years ago. Um, and we were blessed with another boy who came along <coughs> about two years later. And the two images are blurred. The, the definition between Ka'ak and Logan is, right. it's a tough one to, um, to chip through the two things. But uh, he was a little nature boy, you know. Uh, he was, he was, uh, yeah, he was a mountain man. How did you get through that? Uh, well, it wasn't easy, especially in the light of the fact that there's a <coughs> the whole hysteria that surrounded the mid to late 70s was um, it was anything but conducive to normal family life. Um, uh, but we pulled tight together, and um, and both uh, my wife and I we had strong families, so. And good support. I mean, John Bonham from from Zeppelin, and his wife Pat, they were magnificent with us and helped us a lot. And we lived pretty close together, a, a long way from London, so we were kind of local people. And uh, local community. I'm still in the same place, really, more or less. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing that there's no words that are anywhere to be found that can tell you about the. The sort of huge abyss. I wrote another song about him called "I Believe," which uh, came, was on an album in 1992. And it was, uh, and, and every now and again, he turns up in songs. You know, for no other reason than I miss him a lot. Well, grief is such a individual, uniquely individual thing, and such an intimate thing that nobody can give anybody advice about grief. Going through what you did, losing a son and a young son mm. at that, is there any word maybe of counsel that you can give to someone who's looking in on this and saying, you know, I lost somebody recently? Mm. Well, as you say, it's such an individual phenomena or just piece of real bad luck. And um, I don't know how many people have been in the public eye to such a a garish degree as that in, you know that's what happened to us I know other guys who do what I do who've, who've lost kids and um, we, because we're kind of public property in a way right. for all that we're not before this because there's so much hidden we're still public property so we our conditions and our luck and our bad luck and our, con our whole circumstances are there for public discussion. Yeah, that's how it works, you know. So when it's tough, it's really tough. I would just say, I can't imagine how people get through it. It's, there's no advice. Just love everything around you as much as you can, really. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. 
You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. the new album, Carry Fire. From where did that title come? Well, I guess it comes from my, my condition uh, as, a, as a spirit, as a guy, you know. Um, I'm dedicated, and quite often I make haphazard errors and mistakes, and sometimes I have a really good clear run for a while, but I'm not letting it go. I'm just steaming right the way through my days and my time, bringing it with me, you know, the kind of, the flame, the one Carry that I... fire. Yeah, the one I had in the beginning. Maybe the one that I got transmitted from a mixture of stuff, the stuff that I thought that my parents perhaps had never been party to, the, the kind of bohemian boom in, in Europe that followed what was going on over in, you know, with Dean Moriarty and all the people over there with, in San Francisco, the far out poetry, the poetry and jazz, all that stuff was coming at us like, whoa, brilliant. You know? And of course, in Britain, the generation before had never been party to this kind of thing that was going on, you know. Um, that Frank Sinatra would have women swooning when he got off a plane, that, you know, um, Woody Herman, Duke Ellington, all those great players from down in New Orleans. Right. You have a country that was brimming over with different cultures and different peoples who all brought fantastic dynamism to the national sort of plate. And we didn't really have any of that stuff. We just listened on the radio if we were lucky. There's so much in that I want to follow up on. But you mentioned Frank Sinatra. And it's occurred to me, and the question is whether it's ever occurred to you, fair to say that you have been an R to rock and roll, what Frank Sinatra was to crooning in the late 30s and 40s? Well, Sinatra wasn't on his own. He had, he was surrounded by, you know, as we know, Sammy Davis and I guess Buddy Greco, Mel Torme, all those great singers, uh, Tony Bennett. And I, too, am part of a sort of a sort of sweep of energy um, and my contemporaries are you know I guess Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart and Elton John and people like that people who won't lie down exactly not exactly your rat pack but mm. I, I, I yeah. take your point but yes yeah, Sinatra was he was the, the real deal well it's no bulletin to you that a lot of people consider you mm. the real deal is that the way you think of yourself? I mean, down where you live, inside yourself. No, do you know what I think, Dan? I think I'm still doing what I was cut out to do the way I should do it. I shouldn't go and join the kind of, the corporate sort of pool of people waiting to just dish it out so that the car parking is 15 bucks and the, the beer is 10 bucks and there he is. Right with plenty of makeup you know it's just like that that's not why we did it in the first place so so yeah i'm thinking it's okay i'm doing the right thing well with that in mind i want to 
read you back a quotation, that the downside of having an illustrious past for a musician is that many fans want you to live in it. Mm. Well, you know, it's, we're entertainers, so we must. I, I go and see somebody, you know, I used to go and see Bo Diddley, he was my hero, you know, and one, I wanted him to play. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover, but he did. And he played Pretty Thing and Who Do You Love and all those great songs. And, um, and I, I know that I must bring a lot of that to the table because that's how I'm, why I'm still here to a degree. Right. But I have to modify it and spice it up and take this obsession to keep moving forward. Well, it's not an obsession. That's what I kicked out doing in the first place. I was in the most... Um, <coughs> Um, interesting group of people in the 70s. That band was very uh, prolific. It was not all blood and thunder. There was a lot of delicacy about it too and a lot of great craft. But w the great thing about us in those days was, for better or worse, or like it or not, we did continue to develop constantly and to keep changing. And that's just what I do now. It's, it's great, it's stimulating. Well, that shows in this new album, Carry Fire. And we can't go down the list of all the songs, but I'm interested in Carving Up the World, dot, 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 A Wall and Not a Fence. Tell me how you came to do that song. Fancy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's not difficult to see what's going on. And it also uh, the ridiculousness of, the, of our times. And yet, as ridiculous as these times are, because we're living in them and we're experiencing this right. nonsense, insanity that we're surrounded by, is from time immemorial. It goes back all the way through time. These gestures and these neuroses and these... Um, the, it's a similar condition, but just with different clothing and different weaponry. It's the same mindset. Yes, it, I, I, you have to. It beggars belief, really. You're listening to the big interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. Well, you, you spent some time in Austin, Texas. Now, for transparency, I'm a Texan, a fifth or sixth generation oh, Texan, great, yeah. born and raised there. But I'm interested in your experience. You moved to Austin and lived there for quite a while. What was that like? And what did you learn from it? Well, I thought I knew America. I thought I'd been around it for 40-odd years, and I knew many Americas. Mm -hmm. And I was impressed. And when my kid, the kid that followed Carrack, when he was young, he used to come on tour with me with his skateboard. And I used to buy a big Rand McNally map of the United States, which every year has new roads. And I've got a bigger one all the time. Now I'm nearly blind. And I, I used to uh, hit the road 
in a rental car and I used to plan my touring based on places I hadn't yet explored. Mm -hmm. So I could go from Norfolk, Virginia, across the Blue Ridge Mountains and then go, uh, you know, the Smoky Mountains and down into Tennessee. It was brilliant, all that stuff. And Texas, I played there and then I thought, well, Austin, surely that's where uh, Jimmy Vaughan comes from. That's where uh, all these guys have gone to, all these musicians. And I went there and I met all these guys and I went, wow, there's more musicians per square mile there than anywhere else on the planet, even Nashville. And also they had more attitude, I think, than the Nashville. There was more of a kind of Tex-Mex type of rock and roll element to it. There was the Continental Club, which is a brilliant hang. Right. So I went down there and without further ado, moved in. But you eventually left. You liked yeah. it. You liked a lot of things about it, but yeah. you eventually left. I, well, yeah, for many reasons. But um, <clears throat> I guess really I was probably, I used to go home quite a lot back to England. And the relief of opening the door of the airplane when you got back to a temperate climate was like, whoa, <laughs> you know. Although I'm a drifter in many respects with a silver spoon, I must say that maybe because I already lost my boy and my, my family have ached ever since, I think I was missing family. Even though I have been transient for, for the last 53 or four years, you know. So there was something about going back but there was also the feeling of defeat, because I really didn't want to go back, but I was just drawn. Uh, and um, So there are a lot of factors behind it. When you're not singing, when you're not consumed by music, and I recognize you are much of the time, what do you like to do? You said you like to travel, you like to drive around. Hmm. What else do you like to do? Well, I'm a terrible t uh, sort of hack tennis player. I love playing tennis. I mean, doubles these days, of course. Less <laughs> running around. But, I mean, uh, yeah, that and I play five-a-side soccer on a Wednesday night in the village where I live. And, um, yeah, well, I try and find my family, you know, and you look after the kids and then you've got to find them later. <laughs> um, because I live sort of maybe eight, nine miles from where I went to school, I, I mean, there's a very comfortable and humorous rapport with my, my all my neighbors and friends it's a it's a good life i noticed that you always referred to england or great britain and when you spoke of going home before you're talking about going to wales right mm. the welsh borders yeah what is there about wales i mean obviously there's always the magnet of home there's the draw yeah. of home but what particularly about wales you talked about austin and your experience in mm. america well but what I'll is never there know, about yeah. I could never have been a Texan. I, it was too late. I was, it was too late down the line. And I can't be Welsh or maybe even English, really. I'm just a guy who lives in, in those islands. But when I was a kid, as my father hauled us out of that grey, we spent a lot of time. He had a car that was held together by wire and welding. And we used to always go out into the Welsh hills, exploring castles and churches and I was completely enamored by this fact that 500 years earlier than these days in the in the 1950s there were Welsh princes there was a culture that 
not only still has its own language, but it had its entirely its own culture and its own history and its own stories and its own links and its own legends and its determination to be independent from the German English, you know. There's still that hangover because the English were an invading force in Britain. And as a sort of, sort of, I guess, um, amateur historian, I was always very interested in the way that it worked, mm -hmm. the fact that it's still not. In that song uh, about a wall and not a fence, it talks about the English and the Scottish and the Irish and the Welsh. It's, I mean, really, you know, there's no distance in between people. There's never any distance, but there's a million miles of distance. And it's inherent. It's a shame, but it's a fact. And so Wales has always intrigued me because it's a, it is a definitely a land of, of mystery, which has been dwarfed really by contemporary travel and by every single communication and every single chain of stores, restaurants, supermarkets. The whole thing has now become one great big you know, blob. Ah, but it does have this mystic past, yeah. if you will. It Maybe does. this too far a stretch, I want to ask you that some of Led Zeppelin's music and some of your own music, it's been suggested to me, has some mysticism about it. Hmm. Is that connected to what you're talking about with yeah. the history and the, if you will, magical stories about the whales of past? Yeah, I think so. Not that I know anything particularly specific about anything, but that it's there. And it's still there in the spirit of the people, too, that the, the knowing that, it's, that they're different and that it's a different story. I can't put my finger on it, and as you can, if you were to ever trawl these songs, I touch on it. I talk about seasons, I talk about landscape. I think if you're if you're the 15th generation of people from the same place, there are certain places that you would go which are really special and you don't even know why. I think that's beautiful. I agree. And now we're getting down to something where, where I hoped we'd be. When you talk about Wales and Welsh history, your eyes get a far away look. I don't know what the soldiers call a 500 or 1,000 yard stare. Hmm. That leads to the question, Robert. I mean, everybody knows who you are publicly. Who are you as a person, as a man, who are you? Uh, how many weeks have I got to try and figure out how to begin to say? I can't analyze or, or summarize myself, really. I think I'm, first of all, I'm a, I'm a very fortunate character who's been, I've been given a lot of gifts, and not of all of them are evident, but to inquire, to have avid interest in the time and space in which you live, and to cherish it. And <clears throat> maybe that's because I lost my boy. Maybe that was the kind of the gateway into manhood, because then I had to have real shoulders. There was no more, you know, the kind of tea dance had finished, really. And um, so who I am, I suppose, I'm a bunch of resonant resonances from all the things that have happened to me. And at the back of it all, the kind of buffer that keeps me 
okay, is all that abstract stuff that makes my songs come to life and makes my life like it is. I mean, I don't make these songs up as if I don't know who I'm singing about, you know. And they're not prolific and profound, really. They're just meanderings from a guy who's got his eyes open. Hey, lady, you got the love I need. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Robert Plant. What's ahead for you, Hal? Well, this is a roller coaster promotional tour. Um, this is what I vowed I'd never ever do. Um, but I'm excited and proud of what I do and the company that I keep. So I think I, I say goodbye to you and then I, I go down to Texas for a couple of days and see my old friends down there and then I go back to the UK and unhitch everything. There's two big soccer matches coming up Saturday and Tuesday and I'll be at both of them. Now, tell me, what do you hate most about the road? The hurry up and wait. Uh, th that great sort of vacuum. But I can avoid it, really. I just have an equivalent Rand McNally in every country and make sure that I go somewhere quite interesting. And then I, I really like to arrive at a gig 15 or 20 minutes before showtime. <laughs> don't want to hang around. I don't want any broccoli before the show. People started eating before concerts backstage. It's a phenomenon that never existed in the 70s because nobody had an appetite. <laughs> By the way, you mentioned travel any number of times. Besides your native Wales, favorite place in the world? Morocco. Why? Ah, oh, it's such a stimulating place. It's, it, it's physical beauty is one thing, but outside of the main city centers and stuff, there's community, village, there's, um, it's a strong family bond in those little villages, and I've spent countless, countless times traveling or staying in one place for, for quite a long time and uh, you can get immersed in, uh, the, in the kindness and the, the sort of hospitality of these people. I, and then of course there's the music, you know, the music is amazing. You know, but um, I always think you know, Marrakesh is expanding, the Russians are in there building villas and great palaces and stuff like that. The water will run out invariably, that what's, that's what happens with that huge expansion. But outside of the main places, it's business as usual. Beautiful. You buy into the idea that, and you know this country well, that America now has reached its peak and has gone into decline? I don't know. I don't see enough I see so many Americas, I can't get a grip on what the consummate America is. Do you know what I mean? As, as a, it'd be like you coming to the United Kingdom right. and saying, oh, the UK's, look what we're doing, Brexit, 
Look at the Europeans. Look what all... How do you really ever know when you're a visitor? Things are looking a little bit awkward at the moment. But I think that sanity will rule the day sooner rather than later. That's one of the better descriptions I've heard about where we are today. A little bit awkward, I think you What can I say? <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere on the street. Nobody's, nobody's missing it, are they? No. Now, I'm switching gears. Now, if I'm to say the eulogy for you, what do you most want to have said about you? I don't know. Um, geez, is it? Is this the end? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, it's, for yeah. you it's just the beginning. Yeah. You're, you're only 69. Yeah, I know, I know. I know what you're saying, yeah. Um, I think maybe they just have to say, I thought he'd gone to park the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me try it another way. You have much to be proud of. In terms of music, of what are you proudest? Hmm. I'm proud of the fact that I'm always looking to learn, to open it up more, to try things out, to, so to, not to be specific about particular pieces of music because they all live in particular times for me. When you talk about Stairway to Heaven or something like that, the time, it lived in that time. It's something that was an achievement, but time is always moving. and. My real fortune is that I'm always, as a singer, not so much an instrumentalist, I'm really looking, I'm open, and I'm, I'm open for business, you know. Robert, you've been so generous with your time and with yourself. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Which gin do you prefer, I think? <laughs> I don't know nothing at all. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, if you think about it, I come from England to promote a collection of songs. And I end up in a conversation like this. It's fantastic. Well, I thank you for it. No, I thank you too. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move make you sweat. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say. So please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Thank you for joining us for The Big Interview with Dan Rather, where music and conversations unite. Until next time, keep the music playing. <laughs>